Um, There are, we'll be in verses 14 through 29, there are parallel accounts of this story of this boy that's living with an unclean spirit. Uh, These parallel accounts are found in Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9 as well. I've chosen to take up Mark's account. One, I just love the gospel, Mark. Uh, And two, there's a number of details, some vivid details, in fact, that are in Mark's account that aren't in the others. And so I decided uh, to spend our time here this morning. So Mark 9, beginning in verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What I want to do this morning is first consider uh, this boy and his condition. We learn of him from the perspective of his father. This was for the father his only child, and he's tormented by this evil spirit. In Matthew's account, he says that he suffers terribly. The spirit would seize him. It would throw him down on the ground. His body would become rigid. His teeth would grind. He would foam at the mouth. The boy was shattered. At least that's how Luke describes it. He says that the demon shatters him. Let's take a moment. Just let the impact of that sink in for just a moment. A little boy shattered. We get a sense of the sinfulness of sin. We read about this little boy who suffered so terribly. And still, this is not enough for the demon, for sin is far more despicable 
You see, we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin in its goal. That's where it's most clearly seen. The Spirit would take this boy and he would cast him into fire to be burned, into water to be drowned. The goal was death, destruction, to cause mourning without hope. Friends, sin is ugly, it is dark, it's vicious evil. We look at this boy and we see, we feel the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And there's not one part of our world that we are not pierced by the hideous nature of sin. Each of us lives with a deep, visceral impact of sin in our lives. We're confronted with it at every point. We open our news headlines, and we read about it. We hear it on the radios. We see it in our world and in our communities, in our nation, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our own homes. And not only sin is sin something that is ugly and distant, something out there, but it also, it resides within. It is a condition that is inbred in us. It's part of who we are. We are sinners, and it's ugly. And still, even when we see the ugliness of sin and perhaps are even repulsed by it, what we find is that far too often, our response to the sinfulness of sin is not faith in God, but a response of unbelief. And we get a a, a sense of this reality, this response of unbelief in our story Jesus laments in verse 19. He says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Another translation could be you unbelieving generation. Matthew and Luke both add the word twisted generation. The idea of twisted is the idea of a, of a perversion. It's a turning away in the wrong direction. I and mean, we use the word in this way, don't we? Something evil happens and, and we say, oh, that's, that's twisted. It's wrong. It's evil. This is a turning away in the wrong direction. Rather than the people turning to Jesus in faith, they've abandoned that and they've turned another way. Now, when we look at the disciples and we look at this dad, I mean, really what we see, we see the insidious nature of sin. We see how it is so subtle and so covert and so, so deceitful, right? It lurks and it lingers in places and in ways that we wouldn't imagine and in ways that we wouldn't expect. I think about the disciples and, and, and the dad here, right? They have really good intentions. The disciples, they just want to deliver this boy, Right? They want to restore peace to the family. They want to order the chaos that they are experiencing each and every day. And the father, he just loves his son. He wants life for him. And yet, they are an unbelieving generation. Sin resides within. It has intimacy in the soul. And so even in their very good desires, sin takes an opportunity to corrupt, to twist, and to pervert into various forms of unbelief. 
And so first, we want to consider these disciples. Their unbelief is in the form of perhaps what we might say a a self-reliance. The boy is brought to them and they're unable to deliver him. Now, to be fair, they may have had good reason for believing that they would be able to do this for this little boy. Uh, Previously, Jesus had sent them out on a mission And when he sent them out, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. We can read about that in Mark chapter 6. And so when this little boy is brought to them, they had confidence that they could do this for this little boy, that they could solve this very problem. But perhaps that confidence was their very problem. Perhaps their confidence rested not in dependence upon God, but in themselves. They ask this question in verse 28. Why could we not cast it out? Somewhere along the line, it seems that they had lost sight that the power to cast out these demons, the authority that they had over these unclean spirits, was not one that they inherently held for themselves, but rather it was granted to them by Jesus. And they responded in this kind of self-reliance. They acted independently of Christ and they turned to their own power. To this question, why could we not cast it out? Matthew tells us that Jesus said this. He told them, well, why could you not cast it out? It was because of your little faith. And here's the question. Why was their faith so small? That's a question we want to ask because we don't want to be caught with with a little faith. Well, their faith was small because their faith rested in their own power. And their power is small. And how easy it is for us to respond to the sinfulness of sin that we experience with our own versions of self-reliance. And there's our, there are a myriad of ways that we seek autonomy and we seek independence from God, believing that somehow that we could acquire the benefits of God apart from God. And as Christians, we might dabble in the Bible some, we might tinker with a bit of prayer, some spiritual conversation, but too often what we find is that we only really run to God in emergencies. And even then, we're only looking for a magical solution that we ourselves weren't able to already fix. It's self-reliance. Our assumptions about truth and reality is based on ourselves and our own mind, our own reason, what seems to make sense, and it overrides humility before God's revelation. That's self-reliance. Our affections in life experiences becomes the standard of our judgments about what is right and wrong rather than God himself as the source of righteousness. That's self-reliance. Our ability to acquire friends and gain laughter and place ourselves on the end of, of the praise of others is what we use to mark our identity and our value rather than the image of God in which we are made. Self-reliance. We measure success by what works rather than by what pleases God. It might be really hard to do. Self-reliance. We rely on our charisma to gain control, our intelligence to secure peace, 
our confidence to find rest, our money as our strength, our position as our measure of success, our power as our source of comfort, our parenting as our pride, our prominence as our measure of value. Even our expressions of religion are too easily used as activities to avoid real vulnerability and trust in the Lord. His disciples, they were busy doing the Lord's work. And yet subtly this sin had crept in in a form of self-reliance. The father, he too has to come to grips with the harsh reality of the sinfulness of sin. And his response is not one of self-reliance, at least as much as we can discern from the text. His seems to be more of a loss of hope. It's a desperation and, and understandably so, right? I mean, as a father, when your child hurts, everything in you screams, heal, protect, save. Right? I can't imagine the distress that this man lived with each and every day as he watched his one and only child suffer. And this he watched helplessly, unable to help him. And we sense in verse 22 his lost hope because he comes to Jesus and he, and he pleads with him, if you can, right? whatever confidence that, that he had when he originally brought his son to the disciples was now quickly fleeing from him. And perhaps the reason was in that day, in that culture, the disciples of a rabbi represented the rabbi himself. And so when he brought him to the disciples and they were unable to help him, his confidence that Jesus, the rabbi himself, could do anything to help was now quickly fleeing from him. And so he asked this question, if you can. <laughs> and Jesus, he rests on these words. Jesus says, if you can? Hey, like, do you not know who you're talking to if you can? That would be like asking Ryan Mayo over to Uncle Roy's 75th birthday party and saying, hey, do you think you could, you know, lead the family in some happy birthday songs? If you could, think you're capable. Or asking Patrick Mahomes if he could come to the local Wee football camp and maybe, I don't know, if you could, teach some kids how to throw a football, if you can. Like, do you not know who you're talking to? I'm the eternal son of God, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and end, if you can. I'm the giver and sustainer of life. Everything moves and breathes and has its being because I am if you can, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the mighty one of Israel. Have you not seen what I've done, heard the, about the promises that I've kept to my people? If you can, I'm compassionate. I'm powerful. I'm the sovereign one, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the prince of peace. Don't abandon hope because I can. All things are possible for the one who believes. And in response to this, the father, he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, I really do, but, uh, but I don't. 
You see, the sinfulness of sin has taken its toll, and I'm not sure that I can hope anymore. Despair has set in, and as much as I want to and do, I don't, and I can't. His confession, I believe, help my unbelief, is a candid plea for help at the point at which his faith is ready to fail. And this is different than self-reliance, but it's still a struggle of unbelief. We lose hope. We ask, if you can, Jesus. Right? It's the inward struggle between what we say we believe and, and what we even know to be true and the deep doubts and the despair that seems to haunt our souls. We believe, but we're not completely sure we really can believe. We doubt that God can forgive a sin such as mine. We're not sure that he can really reconcile this broken relationship that grieves us so deeply. We're not sure if he can strengthen our faltering faith, that he can save a wayward child, that he can heal our painful past or our painful present, that he could comfort our weary hearts, that he could honor our godly but but difficult decisions. It's at least worth asking ourselves, in what do we struggle to hope this morning? Where have you given up and you doubt God's presence in your life, his power, his compassion? And right there, let this man's prayer be yours. I believe. Oh, Lord, help my unbelief. Well, both responses, self-reliance, lost hope, they require of us to come to the Lord, confessing our unbelief and turning back the right way. If the word twisted is a turning away in the wrong direction, then the right response is turning to Jesus in faith. And we have to turn to Jesus in faith because, and I've said this before, Jesus is the turning point. You think about a movie, right? There's always a turning point. It's the moment the hero shows up, the music begins to change, right? The bad guys look worried. Everything turns. Everything changes. And when Jesus enters the scene, we read of it, immediately everything changes. People are literally amazed by him and they run to him. Jesus himself, by simply walking into the scene, provokes astonishment. The New American Standard Bible says that the people were amazed, but it's, it's more than that. There's a little preposition added to this word in the Greek, and it, it means out. It's something beyond. They are amazed beyond themselves. That's why the ESV says that they were greatly amazed. I love the NIV translation. It says that they were overwhelmed with wonder. They are not simply astonished, but they are utterly astonished by Jesus. Luke adds, and we were all astonished at the very majesty of God. 
You see, that's it. Jesus is the majesty of God. And when he enters in, when God shows up, when he is present, we're utterly astonished. We stand in awe of him. We wonder at him. We are amazed by him. Because Jesus is the majesty of God. And the reason that we are amazed by Jesus, the reason that we must turn to Jesus in faith when we are facing the sinfulness of sin is because he and he alone is the one who holds the power and the compassion to save. Only he ultimately can help. The compassion of Jesus, it jumps off the page with this one little question in verse 21. He asks this father, how long has this been happening to him? How long has your little boy suffered so terribly? It's, it's a question of compassion, of love, of care, of concern. He, he looks at this father and he sees him in his great distress. He is full of compassion. And that's the thing about Jesus. He is no distant observer. This is an intimate question. He enters into our lives. I mean, he entered into humanity to confront the sinfulness of sin. And and here, confronting the sinfulness of sin means looking at this father and this boy and having the kind of compassion that asks, how long? It reminds me of Exodus chapter 2. The children of Israel, they're in slavery. And in chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, it says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel And God knew. He sees them in their great distress. He's full of compassion. This is your Jesus. And in response, the father, he cries out, since childhood, since childhood, I know you. Many of you have suffered since childhood at the hands of the sinfulness of sin, or you've watched your spouse or your sibling or your child or your friend suffer since childhood. And, and for us, this moment as we're reading Jesus' question, we find comfort because we realize that Jesus sees you. He has not forgotten you. He looks upon you. And it's okay to stand astonished, amazed, because he enters into your life and he asks how long. His compassion is something to revel in and to bask in how long. But of course, his compassion, (laughs) it's not idle. The compassion of God is not just sympathy, but it's It moves him to respond, and Jesus responds with great power. In verse 19, he he says, he commands, bring the boy to me. Bring him to me. Now think about this. Though he laments the faithlessness, he laments over their unbelief, he still acts on behalf 
of this boy and his father. Jesus' action depends not on their faithfulness, but upon his sovereign mercy. He is gracious. And they bring this boy to him, and, and he falls before him, and he begins to convulse, and he rebukes this unclean spirit. In verse 25, he says, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. It is an authoritative final command of power. And the demon, it, it cries out, it convulses the boy terribly, and then it leaves him. And the boy, he lay there seemingly lifeless. Mark says that he laid there like a corpse, and he highlights the fact that those who are standing around watching this moment, but this crowd saw what appeared to be a dead boy. Now, this is not biologically speaking a resurrection event. He's not actually dead. But Mark is very intentional about what he records. And so when he says that the boy laid like a corpse and the people saw what appeared to be a dead boy, he's, he wants to make sure that we understand this picture. That when Jesus reaches down, life floods into the moment. This is a movement from death to life with Jesus as the one who stands in between as the source and the cause of this movement. As we read this, we realize that this then is a mini drama of the gospel. The boy's sentence, it was a death sentence. But with Jesus, that sentence turns to life. Redemption becomes a reality. And hope, well, hope reigns. And when we gaze at the cross, what do we see? but the power and the compassion of God. Because of his great love, his great compassion, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem in order that he might confront sin, that he might confront the sting of death. He is full of compassion. And the one suffering on the cross, he had to be powerful, able to save. Because we know that sin, it's a mighty force. It's something that in this boy, we see it convulses terribly. But this one Jesus, the one who conquers sin, the one who overcomes the grave, he is beyond sin's equal. And his power is evident to us in his resurrection. Jesus, full of compassion, is powerful and able to save. And thus, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how sinful sin is in us and around us, we stand dependent and assured that all who turn to Jesus in faith are saved from the sentence of death that rightfully belongs to sinners like you and like me. We in Christ have been delivered from death to life by this one Jesus who stands in between. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not declaring to you that if you have enough faith, that all is going to be well tomorrow. That your particular circumstances 
going to change as we deem right that everything will just be peaches and cream. But what I am declaring to you is that when your faith rests in Christ, ultimately, ultimately all really is well. You see, God may grant to us today various gifts, various graces, if you will, like health and happiness, peace, security, a kind of zeal for the Lord. But he might also remove or even withhold such graces so that we might learn to depend upon his grace more and more. We don't measure the power and the compassion of God by our standards or by our circumstances, but by what he has done in his death and in his resurrection. We measure his power and compassion by what we know to be true, what's been made known to us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we began with this father-son. I want to end with a story about this mother's son. Um, In 1998, I came to the University of Kansas to go to school. Uh, When I showed up, I thought I was a believer. Um, I based that on three things. I was American. I was from a small town. I like country music. I showed up to KU and I realized people really believe this stuff. And I realized I really didn't. And so I knew at that point, actually I learned that there was a word for it. I was an atheist. And, uh, and so I began to just sort of live that out and, and not think much of it. And then at some point I ended up in Dodge City, Kansas. Don't ask me why, but I was there in Dodge City, Kansas one weekend. And I began to have a conversation with a friend of mine. He was a professional steer wrestler. You you literally can't make it up. I have this conversation. It was an election cycle, so we're talking about politics, and like it often happens, our conversation about politics moves to ethics, which then turns to religion. And I began to tell him about my my atheism uh, and what I thought, and we had this conversation for a while, and finally, uh, at the end of it, he he delivered to me what is known as Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager. And basically he said this. He said, look, at the end of our lives, both of us are going to die. And, and if when I die, if I'm, I'm wrong and there really is no God, as you say, Ryan, then I've lived a good life and I just die. Nothing really happens. But if at the end of your life, you're wrong and there really is a God, and there will be grave consequences. And then he said this. He said, make sure if you're going to live your life based on what you believe, that you know it's true. And I thought, wow, you arrogant jerk. I really did. I thought it was such an arrogant thing to say. And so I decided at that point in my great humility that I was going to prove his Christian faith wrong. Evidently, I didn't have a good grasp of human history. Um, and so I came home back to Lawrence and I began to set on this journey to study in order to prove his Christianity wrong because I knew that, the, that Christianity was just a bunch of silly myths and the Bible was full of all kinds of contradictions. 
And as a part of this process, I began to read the Bible. And along the way, I kept coming across these things that I thought were good objections, but I would find reasonable answers. And they weren't answers I necessarily believed, but I thought they were reasonable enough that I didn't think they were good arguments to, to bring to my friend. And then one day I was in my apartment and I picked up this little book that I'd had for some time. It was entitled The Case for Christ. It was by a man named Lee Strobel. And I picked it up and I looked at the back and I realized, ah, this guy tried to do the very same thing I'm doing, only he did it wrong. So he set out to prove the Christianity of his wife wrong. He was a journalism guy and, and he came to faith in Jesus. And so I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to read this book as a case study of what not to do. Find his missteps, and I'll find good answers. And so during that time in my life, I was working during the day full-time, and um, in the evening, I would come home and read this book. And, and just after a couple of days, one night, I, I finished it. I was enthralled by the book. And I remember sitting in my uh, little one-bedroom apartment in my mauve recliner at 3 a.m. in the morning. It was on University Drive. And I laid the book down. And I remember these words as if they were clear as day. I thought it's true. What the Bible says about Jesus is true. And, and I can either believe it or I will live the rest of my life as a lie. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but I went to bed that night a Christian. Now, fast forward a number of years. And I was um, hired as a youth pastor at a local church just down Peterson, Lawrence Heights Christian Church. And on the day of my ordination, this sweet little woman that Hannah and I had become dear friends with, her name was Debbie. She walked up to me and she handed me an envelope and she said, Ryan, I've been waiting for a long time to tell you this story. Uh, I just didn't know when to tell you and how to tell you. And so today seems like a fitting day for you to know something of the backstory of your life. And so uh, I opened it that afternoon when I got home and I began to read about how one day Debbie had gone to a local Christian bookstore that's now out of business and she, uh, she had a book ministry. She would buy books and give them away all the time. And she saw this woman sort of walking around, seemed like she had purpose, but also kind of aimlessly looking at books. And she would pick them up and read the back of them, put them back and and she thought, I'm just going to go ask her. So she walked up to her and said, are you, are you looking for something in particular? And this, this woman began to describe her son, who was an atheist. And she was trying to find a book that she could give him because she just didn't know what to say to him. And Debbie, she had literally picked up every book, The Case for Christ, off the shelf because she was going to give them all away. And she said, here, give him this book. And mom gave me that book and I let it sit for quite a while until that day I picked it up. But then what I learned, she wrote, Debbie went home and she began to pray. She forgot to ask this mother the name of her son, so she just prayed for this mother's son. She prayed for days, for weeks, for months on end until one day as she was praying, she sensed the Lord had told her that she could stop praying, that this mother's son was going to be okay. Well, a while later, she was at a Bible study at her local church, Debbie was, and in walked this woman, this mother. She recognized her immediately. She walked up to her and said, uh, reintroduced herself and said, whatever happened to your son? And, 
And this woman said, well, it's Ryan. (laughs) We're her friend, members of her own congregation. She had prayed for me and didn't even know it. I tell this story because my conversion, before my conversion, I really was a walking billboard of the sinfulness of sin. And I stand here today as a testimony of God's sovereign mercy, his abundant grace. And what I learned since that night when I was alone by myself in my apartment is that there is a backstory to my story. And it's a backstory of prayer. You see, not only was Debbie praying for this mother's son, but my mom had recruited a, a, a very small army of faithful women to pray. Women who turned to Jesus in faith. Women who understood the words that Jesus gave to his disciples at the end of our story today. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so they prayed. May the backstory of our lives always be a story of prayer. We've been through a lot as a people, as a church, individually, as a community. We'll go through a lot in the coming days, but we'll turn to Jesus in faith and pray. Because that's what faith does. Faith, it bends our knees. Faith, it it bows our heads. Faith, it, it raises our voices in prayer because faith turns to Jesus, the one, the only one, has the power and compassion to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for seeing us seeing us as we face our own sin and misery. And we wonder, where is our help? Thank you for making yourself known that we might know that our help comes from the Lord. Thank you for giving us Jesus that we might understand something of the majesty of God that we might be brought into your very presence and there live safely with you because we've been washed and made clean by the blood of Jesus. Thank you that as we experience the sinfulness of sin in our lives that we see the ugly and dark and vicious realities of evil that we, we are drawn to the glory and the goodness that's in you. And you've given us faith that we might hope in you. And so, Father, we pray that as we face the various things that we face in our days, that we would um, not turn to unbelief, that we not try to rely upon ourselves, that we not lose hope, but that we would cast ourselves upon you, be strengthened by your grace, and trust you. Father, would you cause us to be a people 
who prays, who live dependent upon you, and this for your glory. All this we pray in your strong and mighty name, the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names, the one who has the power and the compassion to save. Amen.